Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn here in Wiltshire. I've been prostrate in bed for the last five days, and I'm sitting here shivering with a mug of Lemsip. Well, hello from me, Richard Heller, in um, South East London, where it's um, cold, and on the whole, I'd rather be in raw pindi. Um, and Peter, we're looking for a sort of Eddie Painter performance from you today. Um, Eddie Painter famously rose from a hospital bed in the Bodyline tour and played a vital innings. As did, indeed, the uh, four of the English batsmen who were all uh, suffering badly on the eve of the match and came in and scored uh, centuries. So I take heart from that. And I have to say, I've been taking huge heart from listening to TMS. It's absolutely wonderful out there, bringing such memories of you and your journeys and mine, Richard. And today we have one of our closest friends, Mr. Najam Latif, an expert on Pakistan cricket. He's known every great, every mediocre Pakistan cricketer <laughs> since the country was founded in 1947. He's a man we love and venerate. Uh, he's been an assistant in all of our work. He's translated our books. Um, we love him to death. Welcome, Najam. Well, thank you, Peter. And a very good afternoon to you from Lahore. It's a sunny day. And I have been missing you guys, Richard and you. I thought you would be coming to watch the test series. And what excuse do we have, Richard? What excuse do we have not being in Pakistan? Uh, it, it's flimsy. Um, neither of us have been totally fit. Um, we've got a major book to write, and um, and I couldn't get that much cat care for my cat. That's Mike's. Those are my flimsy excuses. What are yours? <laughs> well, I I I mean, I'm sick in bed with COVID. I have got an excuse, All right. uh, but nevertheless, um, it's been really joyful seeing Test match cricket played by England back in Pakistan for the last few days. And we've still got Multan and Karachi uh, to come. Uh, Najem, what's the feeling in Pakistan about, about, about all of this? Well, it's such a joy to have England to tour Pakistan after almost 20 years. And everybody is so keen to watch cricket and to enjoy the atmosphere. It is peaceful, good weather, and so many English friends have arrived to watch the match. I was quite surprised uh, yesterday uh, at Lahore Gymkhana that uh, a group of almost 20 English uh, men and women had uh, come to uh, you know, visit the uh, Lahore Gymkhana cricket ground. In fact, they had actually, they were on their way to Rawal Pindi to watch the test. So it is so heartening to see such an enthusiasm not only among the English, but also among all the Pakistanis who are enjoying Test cricket with England after such a long time. By the way, some, some people may not know that Najam is, of course, the curator of the Cricket Museum at Lahore Khana, a very historic place indeed. Uh, he's really the greatest, a uh, great historian of Pakistan cricket and curator of it. Uh, and so those people would have, I hope they went to your museum, Najam. Yes, they did. And uh, they really enjoyed the history that we have of our ground, which started in 1880. And uh, they were so pleased. And some of them said that probably their, their forefathers may have even played at this ground. How wonderful. Wonderful memory. That your ground was, of course, the first test match ground in, in Lahore, wasn't it? And it played, the early test matches were played there until, what, the end of the 50s? Yes, indeed. Uh, 1959. The last test match was played uh, against the West Indies, the team that was led by Jerry Alexander. And Pakistan was then led by Fazal Mahmood. And uh, Pakistan was defeated in that last game at uh, Lahore Jimkhana ground. Indeed, that was the ground. Now, going to our guest last week, that was the ground on which the match in which Wes Hall took a hat-trick, didn't he? Yes, that's very true. And his, his victims were... Uh, Mushtaq Mohammed, Naseem Ghani, and Fazal Mahmood. Whoa. Yeah. Fazal Mahmood, who, of course, was a sort of hard-hitting low-order batsman like 
Wes himself. No, no, Jean. Were you there to witness this hat trick? Oh, absolutely. I was there. And in fact, when uh, Mushtaq Muhammad, who was making his debut, and uh, just like a little boy with his pads and bat, he was standing and I was standing next to him watching him. And he was nervously twirling his bat, but he was very, very calm. And he went in and faced uh, Wesley Hall, who was literally taking his start from the boundary line and uh, bounding in. And there used to be a pin drop silence when he would deliver the ball to this young little boy. But the boy was quite courageous. He would come forward and uh, play him in the middle. Mishtaq was then officially 15, wasn't he? Um, right. I think he was 15 years old. He got his place back, didn't he, as the youngest ever test player um, yeah. some years ago. And he was very proud of that. Um, but uh, actually, we're, we're digressing. We've got a test match going on in... Um, in Royal Pindi at this moment. They're not actually going to play him back then. They're not playing a test in Lahore in this in this mini-series, are they? Unfortunately, no, they are not playing uh, a test match at Lahore, and we really miss that. But you see, now the, the fog has started. Days have become uh, much shorter. By about 5 o'clock in the evening, it is pitch black, and it looks like oh. the middle of the night. Oh, I see. Why is that, Najam? It's because it's so much... Further south, or what is it about the hall, which is uh, pitch black at five pm? It's it's you know the, the I think uh, climate has changed all over the world, and uh, it never used to get so dark so early. And uh, for us, it's also a surprise that why days have become so short. But mm. coming back to Mushtaq Muhammad, I must would I would like to add, he has just uh, celebrated his 80th birthday. Uh, just about last week, I think. So see how time flies, where I mm. saw his debut as a 15-year-old boy and all, almost so many years have passed. Now he's 80 years. Well, we should send happy birthdays uh, to, to Mushtag, who we bumped into last summer as a cricket match, looking in terrific form. And uh, and what a life he's lived. Well, happy birthday, Mushtag Bahamut. Yes. Happy birthday. Happy delayed birthday. Yep. And... Um, um, Back to Royal Pindi. Um, very high-scoring test match going on there now at the moment. Pakistan sort of closing in on England's total of 650 uh, as we speak. Is it a very sedated pitch there, Nardram? Is, is there no life in it at all? Or, uh, yes. Are both sides just batting exceptionally well? <laughs> well, unfortunately, I think this is going to be a reminder of the timeless test between yeah. England and South Africa. Can we compare it with uh, that one? Sure. Mm. You see, uh, actually, the, the wicket has no life in it. But I was very impressed to see uh, Anderson bowl so well. Uh, and he was really taking, uh, you know, his ball was moving, turning. And he bowled very well. I was very impressed to see him. But uh, then, of course, uh, the batting of uh, young Harry Brook was absolutely uh, wonderful because he was playing all his strokes at will. Then uh, the England team has brought in uh, Muin and uh, Adil Rashid and Bairstow. They're all wonderful cricketers. The best thing is that Ben Stokes, the captain, in an unforgettable and unprecedented gesture of goodwill for humanity, he has donated his tour fee to the effectives of the floods of, in Pakistan. I think it's it's absolutely a marvelous gesture on his part. He is quite outstanding, man. Actually, Stokes. It's yes. hard to force him about. It. Yeah, I know. I saw that, and what a how typical of the man is what one must say. And what a tribute to the terrible suffering, you know, which of yes. so, so many of the folkless Pakistani people suffered uh, the last summer when this terrible tragedy occurred. Absolutely, and uh, and his gesture has won the hearts of the people of Pakistan. And I think uh, as a humanitarian, he has really proved that that's what sportsmen should be like. Yes, wonderful gesture. His funds are still very strongly needed, aren't they, Najam? I mean, there's the um, there's still an immense amount of relief work to be done in the aftermath of the floods, isn't there? There's still a lot, oh, of, yes. people, um, still a lot of people who are destitute and suffering, aren't they? That's so true. There are so many people out there in the open 
who need to be resettled back to their homes, which have been completely lost. And there's a huge task ahead of the uh, Pakistan government. And of course, all the humanitarian um, associations in the world are helping out, but it's a big, big task because it was almost 33 uh, million people, you know, who lost their homes. That's, uh, that's actually, that's, that's a breathtaking figure. That's, that's more than half the population of the United Kingdom. That's so true. Uh, yes. Well, to put it in perspective. Yeah. Mm. About, about two and a half to 3,000 people, they lost their lives, including children. And uh, now most of them are all under the open skies and it, the winter has settled in. And uh, so everybody is desperately trying to help them out with warm clothing and uh, whatever uh, food that people can gather. And uh, even private people are collecting goods from people and sending them off in trucks. And so ev everybody is out there to help them out. Give me your uh, assessment of Pakistan cricket at the moment and the team facing uh, England in Pindi, uh, Najam. Well, as you see, the uh, Pakistan openers, uh, Imamul Haq and Abdullah Shafiq, gave a good start. And, uh, and then, of course, uh, Rizwan and Babar Azam, they're all great players now. I think Pakistan team is in the process of uh, building a combination, uh, good team after a very long time. And I'm sure they will give a very good account of themselves. Although I must say the wicket needed to be a sporting wicket. Mm. I mean, I, I'm always a, a supporter of uh, sporting wickets and not this kind of dead wickets, which is so embarrassing, not only for Pakistan, but it's so embarrassing for the bowlers. I mean, they are bowling their hearts out and there is no life in the wicket. So what Pakistan needs to do like when uh, they were using matting uh, and uh, the Eisenhower, uh, the, you know, uh, President Eisenhower had visited the test match and Richie Benno asked uh, him at that time that Pakistan should replace the matting wicket with turf wickets. I think it's about time now that instead of dead wickets, Pakistan should start making sporting wickets that should give an even chance to both the sides. Yes, well, many people don't know that they regard uh, Eisenhower as being rather a inconsequential president of the United States. Uh, but he did achieve two things during his term of office. First of all, he introduced into common discourse the term military industrial complex, which basically explains the post-war history of the modern world. And secondly, of course, he, he got rid of matting wickets in Pakistan, when he said to General Ayub Khan in his uh, famous meeting with him at Karachi, was it not? Um, That's right. Having been coached by Rishi Beno, he 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 said to Ayub Khan, "Now it's time." This was a when a U.S. president talks to a Pakistani military leader. The Pakistani military leader, as you know, always jumps. And um, well, not uh, anymore. Not anymore. It might have been uh, the relationship <laughs> well, was a bit different. Relationship was a bit different then. Um, yeah. Anyway, I, I don't want to venture into current politics, Richard, but uh, Ayub Khan saluted and uh, duly uh, matting wickets were disposed of. It's a it's a very interesting moment um, in in, in Pakistan history. But to put it, but just for for younger listeners, um, younger listeners may actually have forgotten that. Um, Matting wickets was still commonplace, not only in Pakistan but also in um, in the West Indies. Well, as late as the nineteen fifties, and there's a great art. You and I bowl on them. There's a great art to bowling and batting on on matting, um, which is now one of the lost arts of cricket, lost arts in first class cricket. Um, so, Nachum, um, um, let's go back to Eisenhower in the nineteen fifties. You've just been involved in the republication of a very celebrated book on the very earliest days of, of Pakistan cricket. Well, tell us a bit about that book, and um, you know, tell us about tell us about those early days, which are a sort of forgotten era, a, a, a almost vanished era, aren't they, in uh, in, in cricket's history? Well, the uh, actual relevance of uh, this book, test status on trial, which has been 
republished, reprinted by uh, Mr. E. H. Kardar's son, Shahid Kardar, I think is a very timely publication because England is now touring and it was Kardar who was the first captain of Pakistan who played against England, first against the MCC in um, 1951 uh, against Nigel Howard's team. And uh, that is where they, 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 uh, the Pakistani team they, they beat England in uh, Karachi and uh, got their test status. And then again, Kardar was the first captain who toured England in 1954. And uh, again, was the captain of the first team who ever won uh, a test match in England on their maiden tour. So the relevance of this book is most important as England is now touring. And uh, it carries the history of the Pakistan's English tour. And uh, it has been very timely published, I would say. The, I mean, very revealing title, isn't it, Najam? Test Status on Trial. Um, it's fair to say, isn't it, that um, it wasn't, it was never actually, it's hard to imagine, but it was not inconceivable that Pakistan might never have achieved test status at all. Um, uh, it's not inconceivable that Pakistan might have not become a test-playing country. There was a move, wasn't there, to keep it within um, uh, the the ambit of India to continue with an all-India cricket team, and and Kardar and that Kardar personally and that victory were were instrumental in getting Pakistan recognised as a as a new test nation at all in the early fifties, weren't they? Richard, you're absolutely right, because uh, uh, Prakash Mehra, he did try that uh, the status of uh, test cricket should remain uh, with India and Pakistan should just be a part of that. But of course, it was something that uh, uh, was not suitable for a new independent country to be uh, playing under India. So this was this... Uh, Nigel Howard's team provided that opportunity to them. And uh, after winning the test status, Pakistan team toured India. Well, although Pakistan team was, as they called it, was just uh, a club standard team, but of course it proved its uh, mettle and uh, won the second test of Lucknow, where Fazal Mahmood was the architect of that victory. And Nazar Muhammad carried his bat with his 124 runs. So Pakistan was definitely on the map. And then when Pakistan toured England, so when they left Karachi on that steamship battery, their first stop was Bombay, where Kardar met his old uh, contemporaries like Vijay Merchant. And uh, so Vijay Merchant told Kardar, well, if you win just a few county matches, and uh, you draw the test matches, we would think that it is a huge victory for you. But at the same time, both of them emphasized the necessity of India and Pakistan to start playing a regular test series like Australia and England were playing. So then from there on, the Pakistani ship carrying the team stopped at Aden. And at Aden, they got off and Fazal Mahmood who considered himself to be on the national duty was wearing a uniform. So when he came down the plank of the, uh, the ship, there were some army officers and some police officers standing there. They thought some, some royalty is coming down because in those days, most of the rulers used to wear an army uniform or a police uniform or some kind of a uniform. So they immediately lined up and gave a guard, guard of honor to Fazal Mahmood, <laughs> which with all his amusement, he took it with great relish and would always narrate that fantastic moment. And he said, and he, he told me, he said, you know, at that very moment, I thought I'm being given such a great respect. It's a great, great omen. I think, I think we are going to win in England and I will achieve some kind of a honor and respect. So he became very positive with that kind of a reception. By the way, they were right. I mean, Fazal Mahmood was royalty, actually, in a true sense. 
that he was a great noble man and the great victor and, you know, the great winner, uh, the great bowler for Pakistan in its early years and the way he conducted himself throughout the rest of his life um, only enhanced his reputation. I think they spotted something in, in Aiden when he, he went down those steps and was greeted in that way. You're absolutely right, Peter. You know, it is the same thing, like when he was uh, with the Pakistan Eaglets in um, England in 1953, and he saw Len Hutton on that balcony, mm. and, and, and he dreamed, and he imagined that that's, that is where he would be the next year, and that's where he was. Yeah, this is, uh, this is very moving, and, it, and again, as always, anything to do with the history of Pakistan cricket, uh, you have some your hands on it some way, and you've helped it along. Uh, and you, in his autobiography, which you helped with, uh, Najam, he does tell that story, and it's so moving. I think it's been such a great honor to be working with you and Richard, and of course with Fazal Mahmood as well. Well, and, Fazal, uh, this is that is that story. He was it happened to be in England in 1953. Yes, and he went to the Oval Test match. Yes. And when England, Len Hutton led England to that famous Ashes win in 1953 over Australia, he saw Hutton on that balcony at the Oval and he had a vision. It was more, it was almost supernatural, was it not? Uh, you know, he actually had a vision of himself holding, winning the, 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 a test match, which is unthinkable, unimaginable against what was then the greatest team in the world, uh, that Pakistan could do that. And yet the following year at the Oval, it makes your spine tingle. There he was. Well, uh, you know, after the tour uh, of the England uh, in 1954, Fazal Mahmood uh, wrote uh, a book. Uh, you know, it was an account of the first tour of India and, of course, this 1954 England tour. <clears throat> and in that book he wrote, he said, after I saw Len Hutton waving his hand on that balcony, I imagined myself to be there. Mm. And of course, there I was the next year. But between 1953 and 54, till I uh, was in England and standing at that balcony, I couldn't sleep very well for a whole year because every time I tried to sleep, I would see that balcony dancing in my dreams. Oh, goodness, yeah. That would be something to keep you awake at night anyway. Yes, it would be. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, just to um, recap for a moment, Fazal was on that 1954 tour. He was on leave from the police service, wasn't he? I mean, he was a serving police officer. And they'd, um, I think that one of the Pakistan prime ministers at the time established that anybody representing um, Pakistan at cricket overseas would be given leave from his service. A lot of the players on that tour were in, were in the Air Force, weren't they? I think including Carter himself was a, Carter, an, Air Force, yeah. an Air Force posting. And I think Imtiaz, the wicketkeeper, was an Air Force man, wasn't he? No, uh, yeah, yeah, Imtiaz, uh, yes, Imtiaz. And then Vakar Hassan also. Okay. Hmm. So just uh, to put the point in overall context, all of those Pakistan cricketers essentially were amateurs, weren't they? And I think they... You know, they got a very, very small allowance uh, on that tour in, in 1954. So they, all the results they achieved against counties and above all against England, against an extraordinarily good England team, were, were achieved by, by amateurs who'd played most of them a very few first-class matches um, and mostly club games, wouldn't it be, at that time? That's absolutely right. See, the uh, the players who were members of that team were actually playing for the love of the game and for the honor of their country on a paltry shoestring budget of a very minimal daily allowance. It was 10 rupees a day, wasn't it, from memory? Yeah, yeah that's right. But, Peter, they were a cheerful lot, happy-go-lucky people. I mean, they were playing cricket for fun. If somebody would drop the catch, instead of getting annoyed, they would all laugh. And somebody asked them, why, why do you laugh, you know, when somebody drops a catch? They said, because we know it's going to be somebody else the next time. Yeah, don't think you'd see that in a test team very often these days from any country. Yeah. That fun is no longer there. I mean, you yeah. can't even approach players anymore for their autographs or to meet them or to, to, to see them. I mean, they're so cordoned off completely now. Mm. 
Yeah, I mean, long before COVID, they, they, that's right, they lived in a bubble, didn't they? And um, yeah, they, as you say, they're not, they, they weren't approachable. Um, Can I just return to one theme, which we, just, which we were exploring earlier, which I think makes the point about the fragility, which you were talking about, Richard, of the early Pakistan teams. And Kadar in this book really talks about it, about the way in which uh, Pakistan was deeply hindered at the very start because of the, they had to form a board of control for cricket, and I'm quoting from him, it had to start from scratch for the undivided assets, this is often from before partition, were retained by the Indian Cricket Board. The four provincial associations, Punjab, uh, the northwest frontier area, Sindh and Balpur, had to reintroduce cricket. Uh, and so it was a source of, and at the meantime, uh, India was trying to keep the best Pakistan players as Indian players, Fazal himself being the most notable case where they made a real bid to get him before he'd established himself for Pakistan. And so there was a source of inferior a sense of uh, what they call it imposter syndrome. Uh, in a way, on the world stage in the early years for Pakistan. And they really had to establish themselves, not just in in world cricket itself, but also as against their southern neighbour. Uh, and this is what gives this book, which I'm so glad to see uh, republished, because I think it's a great book, uh, and it contains so much, is... Uh, it is this sense that Pakistan had to establish itself. And this is why Qadar is such a great man. Whatever he, I know he's a very controversial man and people didn't like him and so on. But ultimately, there was a greatness. He Because he founded, he was the founder, for all his flaws, of Pakistan cricket in the same way as Jinnah, the Qadi Azam, was the founder of the Pakistan uh, nation. He was a nation builder, Qadar. Absolutely right, Peter. I will wholeheartedly agree with that. Uh, and I would add uh, something else with it, that Kardar was also the first one who started the trend of writing cricket books. He was the one who wrote the first book called Inaugural Tests on the Tour of India. And then later on, it was him who encouraged Kamruddin Bhatt to start writing on uh, cricket tours. That's how Kamruddin got started. And then Kardar wrote two more books of cricket, Test Status on Trial, which now has been reprinted, and then Green Shadows. And then the fourth book he brought out was Memoirs of an All-Rounder. Mm. Kardar has plans to republish the other two books, Inaugural Tests and Green Shadows as well, which I think will be a great service to Pakistan cricket. Green Shadows deals with the tour of West Indies, doesn't it, in 1957-58, yeah. Yes. And uh, Memoirs of an All-Rounder is his sort of reflections on everything he uh, went through, both as a, a, a great cricket captain and as a, and thereafter as the sort of preeminent figure in the administration uh, of Pakistan cricket. And that has so much to talk about because there's two sides of... A.H. Kadar. On the, on the one hand, he was, as you know better than I do, uh, Najam, you know, he was this English, he styled himself, he went to Oxford, he styled himself as an English gentleman, he bought his suits at Savile Row, uh, and he was and he had as a great friend of the Alec Douglas Hume family uh, up, in, uh, up in the borders, and, uh, and uh, Ali Bhutto's family, uh, uh, you know, who he'd been at... Um, He'd known since since a boy in Madrid, in Bombay actually, and so he he was a, he, he saw himself as an Englishman. But at the same time, he had a very interesting, very well developed, what you might call today post colonial sensibility. He 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 knew that Pakistan was being patronised and and unrepresented on the world stage. He he was fighting that battle um, at Lords and as an administrator. And above all, he was leading. I think this reflects huge honour on him again. Uh, the, the 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 battle against apartheid. He wasn't the, the the cricketing world in those days was part of complicit with the evil of apartheid. And and Kardar really was outspoken and brave against that. Of course, absolutely right. Uh, Peter Kardar was a true nationalist 
and a great visionary. And it was him, you know, although this is uh, the credit is uh, now goes to Imran Khan uh, for the neutral umpires, but people forget that in the 70s, it was Kardar who actually brought up the concept of neutral umpires, although it was not fulfilled then, and but it was his thought. And then Kardar also thought about the welfare of cricket players, and he provided them with the jobs in banks. He roped in banks and uh, commercial organizations. He thought that the players should have at least some stable kind of incomes so that they can give their very best to cricket. Then he also thought of building the cricket house that could generate some income for the Pakistan Cricket Board because Pakistan Cricket Board did, did not have any kind of funds like they have now. And then that their office was only run by two men at that time, Kardar himself and of course Mustafa Khan that you have met. So there yes. were literally no expenses, you know, they were not drawing anything out of Pakistan Cricket Board and yet they were returning and giving so much more. Even the honorary secretaries that Kardar would take with him then were always, you know, dedicated cricket players who would not charge anything for their services. You know, it was much, much later on, many years back, uh, Zulfikar Ahmed, who was Kardar's brother-in-law. So he told me one day, he said, you know, it's such a pity that you did not get the opportunity of working with Kardar because like the way you are, he would have loved you and you would have loved to work with him. And I, I have always thought about it that yes, I have missed out on that. Yes, I, uh, I think it's, it's very, I think people don't realize that if you want to understand Imran Khan as captain of Pakistan, you can't do that without understanding Qadar, you know, because Qadar uh, was a nationalist, uh, anti-colonial figure, um, the, the charismatic captain of a very successful national team. And of course, both men went into politics um, and Qadar at a lower level, they became a, a, a Punjabi minister and didn't really have the political skills to go further. But nevertheless, uh, an in, and total integrity is the other thing. Uh, and the same applies um, to, 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 to Imran Khan. Uh, and Imran, it was very, I, taught, I used to speak to Imran Khan about what he owed to Qadar. And Imran told me that, you know, he really, under, he really completely understood who Qadar was. Uh, and he understood what he had done for the, for the national team. And of course, Shahid, who's Qadar's son, is on the boards of, the, of Imran's hospital and uh, is very much in that tradition as a man of total integrity he resigned did he not when he became governor of the bank of pakistan because he was unhappy with the way that the then president zadawi was conducting himself absolutely right yes shahid kardar has inherited the same integrity and principles of his father and he's a very proud man a very decent man and uh, he's got a great love for cricket and uh, so i think that Kardar had left a great legacy uh, in his family as well. I mean, you know his grandson, Hamza, as well. Of course. Yeah, he's played for us. Mm. Very decent player, by the way. Yeah, yes. absolutely. Actually, uh, coming back to Imran Khan, I think uh, after Kardar, there was nobody else who could have filled his shoes except Imran Khan, who has gone much beyond Kardar. But of course... He had the quality of leadership, personality, and presence like Karda did. And uh, so I think the only two real captains that Pakistan has ever had are Abdul Hafiz Kardar and uh, Imran Khan. I think I think you owe an apology here to A to Mushtaq Mohammed, who uh, really was of very of course, of course. Well, and also yes. to the... <laughs> you know who I'm going to say next, who I think is also in that tradition, a certain Nisbah al Haq. Yeah, of course, yes. I, of course, I agree. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. I mean, see, these captains like Mushtaq Muhammad and Miss Paul Haq, they, they led Pakistan to many victories. There's no doubt about that. But as far as I am concerned, 
I have only been very impressed by the personalities of both Imran Khan and Kardar. You know, even I, I remember the way Kardar, like CLR James has uh, described, the way he would walk out leading his team. I mean, it was such a aw awesome moment to just look at him, the way he walked and the way he held his neck, you know, stiff, tilted neck. Like Fazal used to tell me, he said, you know, before he left for England, he was our dear friend Hafiz. We would cycle together to Minto Park to play cricket. But when he returned, when he came back, he was no longer Hafiz. He was Mr. A.H. Kardar. I mean, who was completely different, you know, he had developed his personality. So these were the personalities, I mean, I grew up looking at, and I was always not only impressed, I always tried to be like them too. No. So they were my heroes. So when Kardar retired, I was really sad. And then I saw Fazal Mahmood leading the team out on the field, uh, you know, as the test captain of Pakistan. Fazal Mahmood was, of course, a very handsome man. There's no question about it. He had his own kind of a charisma. But the real charisma that day that was missing was Kardar's presence. And I felt it. I'd like to go back to that uh, 50, groundbreaking 54 tour. I think you knew all of the, um, virtually all the Pakistan players on that, uh, on the tour. I think you stayed in touch with them. You were particularly close to Fazal Mahmood, I know, but um, I think you knew, you knew just about all of them, didn't you? Yes, I was very fortunate to know all of them, except uh, Ghazali and Khalid Wazir. I didn't okay. know them very well. And also Ikram Ilahi. But the rest of the team were all, they all became friends on one-to-one -one basis. And uh, I think I was very privileged to know them the way I did. The um, very brief um, history of that tour, it was a, I remember it actually quite well. It was the first, it was my first year in England. The Pakistanis were the first cricket team I actually f followed at all, having been introduced to cricket by a Pakistani boy, as it happened at, uh, at school. And um like um, I was the son of somebody at the High Commission. But um, it was a very, very wet summer, wasn't it? And um, so wet that the Queen had to meet the, the Pakistani team at Buckingham Palace instead of Lords, didn't she? Yes, of course, that is so true. And uh, and that's where Fazal Mahmood, she noticed Fazal Mahmood's uh, blue eyes. And Fazal Mahmood always used to say, well, you know, she just passed, shook hands and passed, and then she turned. And she came back and asked, where did you get your blue eyes? <laughs> so Fazal was, um, uh, you know, very uh, happy to, to, to see that he has been noticed that way because of his looks. So he said, well, he belongs to the northern areas uh, of Pakistan and, of course, uh, way up uh, where, where these, uh, the Mughals came from, uh, from the central states. And uh, he... Till the day he lived, he always cherished his meeting the Queen. As as we all do, I should say. I met her twice and it was such a moment both times. Yeah, I mean, we grew up seeing her and I think she was the real face of England. I, I saw her uh, when she visited Pakistan in 1961. I saw her very closely from a distance of just about three or four feet away. She had come to the race club uh, in Lahore to... Uh, distribute prizes. It was the Derby, Pakistan Derby, and oh. she awarded the cup there then. Oh. What a beautiful wow. and pleasant lady. Richard, mm. remind us what Said Ahmed told us about his conversation with the Queen. Um, I remember we, we met um, Said through you, Najram. Uh, Said Ahmed, uh, Pakistan, um, Pakistan, leading Pakistan batsman of the 50s and 60s. And um, Said, you, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, Said claimed to have had a sort of private meeting, private encounter with the Queen uh, in, in 1967, didn't he? That's right. And he broke all the protocol conventions. He sort of um, start, opened a conversation with the Queen um, and um, asked her about a, a state visit. Um, and, and she said, well, what do you remember about Pakistan, ma'am? And um, she replied, according to Said, very accurately, um, cricket and horses. So, um, you know, that summarised, uh, that was, I think, a very accurate response. And she also 
according to Side, gave him a sort of personal invitation to visit her at Buckingham Palace the next time he dropped, you know, next time he was visiting England. Um, but I don't think he was ever able to take it up, was he? No, <laughs> yes. Although he, he still uh, says that he was invited, that whenever you feel like, just drop in. Huh. But uh, but he told me another story as well. He said, in fact, he met the Queen twice, 67 mm. and 1971. Right. So he said in, in 1971, when the, when, when the Queen came to meet the team, so after she had shook hands with the team, she was going to walk away. Aftab Gul stepped out and said, oh. when are we going to meet you again? Huh. So she looked at him, smiled, and just walked. And uh, later on that afternoon, they received an invitation to come to the Buckingham Palace for tea. So that's where the team again went to meet her, which was so gracious of the Queen to do that. And so typical, one must say, of uh, Aftab Gul to uh, push his luck like that. And you send him our best regards uh, yeah, to Aftab. Yeah. He's uh, opening batsman. Opening right, batsman, yes. fire, fire, uh, opening batsman, radical student leader, famous for, and um, later radical, very radical lawyer. Uh, so yeah, please give him our best regards. Most certainly I will. Yeah. Uh, but coming back to the 1954 team, my personal view is that there were one or two players who should not have been there. Inst for example, Khalid Hassan, the leg spinner, mm -hmm. the 17 years old uh, cricketer at the time, they had Muhammad Amin. Now everybody talks about him that, of course, Amin was a far, far better bowler because Amir Elahi had, uh, had by that time, he, had, he was not playing test cricket at all. So Muhammad Amin was overlooked and Khalid Hassan was taken. And again, Khalid Wazir was included and Yawar Said was dropped, although Yawar Said was a far better cricketer. Now, by the way, Qatar in his book, deals with this matter, he yeah. makes quite clear that the choice of this 16-year-old leg spinner was exactly his own personal choice, and he states in terms that it was made on merit. Yes, uh, that's exactly what he says. But, uh, but this is what the opinion is, you know, Kardar had his way and he did it right, but there is a general opinion that it should have been Muhammad Amin. Mm. Similarly, there was another bowler. His name was Khalid Qureshi. Mm -hmm. Now, Khalid Qureshi was a left-arm uh, spin bowler. Uh, I mean, he was not a slow bowler. He was a spinner, but at a medium speed, medium-fast kind of a speed. Who used to bowl for uh, Jim Khanna. He had toured India in 1952-53. And uh, he has the most incredible uh, bowling figures of 9 for 0. Uh, hmm. playing at the uh, Gymkhana ground in a club cricket match. So he could have been a very, very good left-arm bowler uh, on that English tour, but he was also uh, overlooked. Yeah. Halid um, Hassan has a very unusual record in Test and first-class cricket. His career was over when he was still a teenager. That's so true, yes. Yeah. Yep. Uh, he got picked for two Test matches in, Eng in England. He bowled at Dennis Compton and Dennis for a long time. Dennis Compton made two hundred seventy-eight um, in the what was it? Where was it at Trent Bridge? That was Trent Bridge. Yeah. Going to the pattern of that series, four Test matches, wasn't it? Pakistan lost at Trent Bridge by an innings. They were saved by rain in two others. Well, they were in a difficult position in two others by rain, and then we come so they're, they're one nil down. We come to the the Oval Test, the last one, nineteen fifty-four. And that's a very low-scoring game, isn't it? And they gain, thanks to Fuzzle, that astonishing victory against a very, very strong English, English team. Tell us quickly about the, the pattern of that game and, um, uh, you know, and how it went. Before uh, I go to the Oval uh, Test match, I would like to uh, narrate a very interesting incident at the third test in Old Trafford. Mm. So... At Old Trafford, again, Pakistan was in trouble. So there were clouds, as you know, Manchester is always raining. Uh. So the whole team, you know, they, they just sat and it was just drizzling. They were sitting in the pavilion and they started all in a chant. And they started chanting, 
uh, a very old famous uh, song from an Indian film, uh, which was made in 1943. And there was this great singing actress called Khurshid and Sagal, again, a very huge singing star of those days. So there was a song about them, which said, uh, Barsore, Barsore means, uh, oh clouds rain. So they would start this huge chant, oh clouds rain, please. <laughs> and the, the English place got startled that what has gone wrong with them? Have they gone in some trance or what? Yeah. So, so of course it rained and the test was saved. And then they moved on to the Oval Test match. Mm. So Indeed. now at, at the Oval, of course, Fazal Mahmood, we have always great praise for him. But I also have to, to say that Wazir Muhammad played a very vital role with his innings of the 42 runs. I mean, had it not been that innings, and even Kardar, he Kardar batted very bravely there as well. Wazir Muhammad always, uh, Wazir Muhammad was actually run out in the first innings without scoring. So he would say that whenever you were batting uh, with Kardar, you had to be very, very careful because Kardar would just, without warning, would run and he was just upon you. <laughs> I mean, I mean, he would startle a batsman by just being there. And the mm. batsman couldn't even say, hello, what are you yeah. doing here? You yeah. know? Oh. So uh, he got run out in the first innings. But then in the second innings, Wazir Muhammad was not being included in the side. It was Fida Hassan who insisted with Kardar that you can choose whatever the team. But this boy has played Frank Tyson very well at Northampton. Mm. And mm. that was why Wazir was taken in the side. And of course, he batted well. Now, Frank Tyson, he was bowling at such a pace that Alimuddin told me, he said, you know, before I could even lift the ball, I mean, lift the bat, the ball had landed in the, uh, in the hands of the wicketkeeper. Mm. And he said, it really scared, scared me to bits. <laughs> but actually, I think it was Pakistan's team effort. We were sitting once, uh, at a, uh, some friends were sitting, Imtiaz, Zulfikar, Fazal Mahmood and myself and Fazal Mahmood as usual was telling him about, uh, telling us about how, um, you know, he brilliantly bowled. He could have even hit a little tiny pin. And uh, so Zulfikar, because Zulfikar was a great wit. Um, and he said, yes, of course. He was playing all by himself. We were all sitting outside and watching him. Yeah, so he didn't get it all as, he didn't get it all his own way. Uh, Wazir Muhammad is still with us, isn't he? I think he's the. I think he might be the last survivor of that 1954 squad. Am I right? Uh, two, two, two of them. Both oh. are in England. Wazir Muhammad and Ikram Ilahi. Oh, Ikram, yes. Ikram. Yes. Um, yeah. But um, Wazir is very proud. I spoke to him some years ago. He's terribly proud of that 42, not just for the runs he scored, but for his dramatic performance. Um, I think he got hit by Tyson, which is pretty... Um, that was a pretty powerful experience without any exaggerated drama, but he pretended, didn't he, that he couldn't... He wanted Tyson to pit and the other fast bowlers to pitch the ball up at him, so he pretended that it was painful for him to play forward, didn't he? <laughs> That's and, true. And, he, and every time he played forward, he groaned theatrically, and, <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and, the, the, and the England bowlers were fooled. Um, he didn't want them... They, they kept pitching it up to him, and he was able to play them. He, he didn't want them to bowl it short at him, did he? Um, and and his, 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 his play acting worked, didn't it? Uh, it's yeah. a sort of Br'er Rabbit in those American ch children's stories. <laughs> yes, who, mm. Please don't throw me in the fissile bush. <laughs> yeah. That's so true, yeah. yeah. Another thing that I wanted to uh, talk about was that who should have been the first captain of Pakistan cricket team? Uh, uh, you see, the first captain actually was Mia Saeed. But then there was this, uh, Dr. Jangir Khan was also there, Majid Khan's father, who I think was a much more uh, experienced player, had uh, played, had toured England in 1932 and had appeared in the 19, uh, against England in 1936 as well. I have always wondered why he was overlooked and Mia Saeed was brought in. Jahangir Khan was a very great sportsman all round, wasn't he? But he was 
to be fair, he must have been well into his 40s by the time of independence. No, uh, uh, Peter, he was just about, uh, I think, the 38 or 39 years old. Oh, really? And he was very fit. Why do you think he was overlooked? Because he was one of the founding figures of Pakistan. Yes. Cricket, along with Justice Cornelius and and the um, who was the secretary who who, won, who drove around in a who took himself around with the, with the national papers in a bicycle. The the Parsi. Um, oh, collector. Collector. That's right. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. Professor Aslam, wasn't it? Yeah. You see, Jahangir Khan had also been named captain of the Indian team which was to tour Ceylon in around 1943 or 44. But the tour was called off because of the war. But then in 1940-46, when England, uh, India toured England, the captain was Pataudi. So again, uh, Jangir Khan, I'm surprised why he was again overlooked. I mean, he was not included in the side. And yet he was still at that time playing club cricket. And he was fit. I have seen Jangir Khan playing at Lahore Gymkhana ground. I have seen him bowling and batting both. And he was very, very fit even in uh, late 50s. Yeah, he might still have made a contribution. Well, that's a mystery to be solved. Um, Definitely. I want to go back to the famous oval victory. Yes. Pakistan get, a, thanks to Fazal's great bowling, some fine support from the other bowlers. Um they dismiss. It's a very low-scoring game, isn't it? They dismiss. Pakistan get a very, very narrow lead, but I, I don't think any... In, four innings, there's no innings above 150, is there? Absolutely uh, right, yes. Uh, I just wondered, though, how much of a... Um, how much of a following... How is that game followed in Pakistan? Absolutely, unbelievably, unprecedented way. That game was followed on shops, you know, small little... these. Uh, uh, beverage shops, uh, these pan shops, these sweet shops. In in every uh, street and corner, there were these radios. So these shopkeepers would put up a huge blackboard like we used to have in schools, you know, where teachers would write with chalks. So they would uh, uh, start writing the scores and they would, uh, they, they, all the, the, the crowd was gathered around the shop listening to the commentary. And of course, because there was the time difference with England, people mm. would still gather, you know, at about early morning, you know, they would, they would, they would go out and uh, wait outside and uh, uh, just wait for the uh, commentary to start. Then, of course, in the cinemas at that time, the, before the uh, main show would come on, they used to have uh, these uh, newsreels. And in the newsreels, they were showing the England uh, matches. And after the tour was over, I remember seeing the whole test match, this oval test match on a screen, which was uh, the, 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 uh, the coverage was for about uh, 15 to 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. And people were not interested in the main film. They were interested to come and see this 20 minute newsreel because this is where the oval test match was being played. And Fuzzle was at his best. Mm -hmm. And also, I've uh, in that early tour, what I have had these really atmospheric descriptions of there was radio commentary at, at an early point, and there would be and huge crowds would assemble in cafes or in newsagents. I think you could see sort of dozens more than that people just listening to the to the radio commentary. Absolutely, I think radio commentary because uh, it's it gets your uh, imagination moving. You know, when you're seeing, your imagination is not really working. You're just watching things because they are before your eyes. But when you start imagining things, it turns it into a fairy tale. It makes very beautiful kind of images in your mind about different players and about people and how they must have been doing things there on the ground. So everybody has his own imagination and has built every match in his own way. So this is why we all have such great memories of these these famous great cricketers, even we haven't seen them. I mean, I have not seen Len Hutton play, but I can well imagine his 364 runs after reading in books or after hearing uh, some mm. excerpts of commentaries. Did they get have Urdu commentary on that 1954 test, or was it all done in English? Was it all in English? In fact, were there Pakistani commentators um, at, in the 
in England at the cover to do the coverage. Yes, but the, all the commentaries were, were always done in uh, in English in those days. Mm, Actually, the 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 first uh, person who did a commentary in Urdu, he was uh, Hamid Sheikh. Uh, Hamid Sheikh was uh, was used to work for Pakistan Times, but he when uh, 1946 when the uh, Indian team was there. So he started the Urdu commentary in short breaks with John Arlott. He was the mm. first one to start oh. this uh, this uh, uh, this concept of Urdu kind of uh, commentaries. But uh, later on, uh, he did not come to England for the 54 tour or any other tour. And all the commentaries that we grew up listening were all in English. And we had Umar Qureshi and uh, Jamshid Marker. Uh, I think they are still the best commentators as far as I can mm. remember. Mm. They were really were wonderful. I, I, we had, and sadly, Emma Qureshi had died by the time Richard and I set about our research. But we, 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 we went to see Marka, Ambassador mm. Marka, and what a distinguished and interesting man. He told Definitely. me, uh, he, he said... Uh, it, it, this is a comment often attributed to others, but he said that his instruction when he became commentator, which I think was almost on the orders of the national president, was oh. to sit in the... Uh, imagine when you're talking, uh, giving your commentary, you're sitting next to a blind man on a bench and, and explaining to that blind man what is going on. And I have to say that I wish some certain modern commentators would remember that advice instead of going on about that self-indulgent accounts of whatever they were doing in the bar the night before, that they would actually remember to tell you what's actually happening at the ground, what, what you, they can see with their own eyes, uh, and so on. And I, he, and I think Makar and Qureshi were an amazing team. Uh, the Hobbs and Sutcliffe of 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 of, of, of commentary, <laughs> as it were. So true, so true, and very well said, uh, Peter. Very well said. Uh, I think this is the best description you could give about both of them. You see, when he became the minister after he had come into politics, he became a minister. So I used to often see him drive uh, on the mall to the civil secretariat where his office was. But you see, it is not like now they have such fanfares and bodyguards and all going on. Kardar would sit all by himself in his car, his driver driving, and he used to go there. So one day, uh, soon after he became a minister, I was visiting Zafar Altaf in his office in the civil secretariat, and Kardar, Mr. Kardar arrived there. So after he had tea with us, so we came out to see him off. So... His car was without the minister's flag. Zafar Al-Taf asked him, Skipper, why are you not flying a flag? He said, my dear friend, when you visit your friends, you don't go there to impress them with your, this kind of flags or with your, uh, this kind of, uh, you know, uh, fanfare. You go there as private friends. You, you don't embarrass people by showing your power to them. I have always remembered this of Kardar. He was a most unusual and precious man who really understood how not to abuse a power. And he, what a lesson he he is and was to members of uh, British politicians today. Um, my my word, uh, what a joy to talk to you, uh, Najam. Uh, it, was, it brings back so many lovely conversations we've had in Lahore and elsewhere over the years. Um, I really enjoyed it. And isn't it exciting to have an England team touring uh, Pakistan again? Absolutely. Thank God the, the finally test cricket is back here. And, uh, and I hope it stays that way. And I think people should come and visit. And you should also come and visit. It's, it's, it's about time, you know. It's been a long time seeing you. I'm afraid it has been a long time. And um, certainly would love to make another visit. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful, just uh, to say this to listeners in general, it is a wonderful experience watching, playing cricket in Pakistan, uh, having anything to do with cricket in Pakistan, particularly in the company of our friend Najam. We've got to draw stumps, unfortunately. <laughs> um, and um, 
No, Jim, thank you very much for um, for being with us again and um, giving us such a wonderful um, account of Pakistan's you know, early years in Test cricket, and um, which was such an augury of um, where Pakistan, what Pakistan has become in the future, and so important to it. I'm so grateful uh, to 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 you, Richard, and uh, to Peter, for uh, having me over for this conversation. Uh, it's such a pleasure always, and I am very, very blessed to be your friend, and I always cherish that. Well, can you send our regards, our fondest regards, to our many mutual friends in Pakistan? And it's goodbye from me, Peter Roborn. It's time for another Lemsip on a freezing cold Wiltshire late morning. Goodbye from me, Richard Heller, in a pretty cold southeast London. Wish I was in rural Pindate. Goodbye from me, from Lahore. It's uh, getting darker, but uh, the weather is still good. Thank you so much.